As was mentioned earlier, certainly again we are honored and thankful that each of us have been blessed with the privilege of assembly to do so as the sunrise sets about us, or rather the sunset takes place about us, and the opportunity is ours to come together on this second occasion today, at least for, for the majority and most of us. As we do come together at this time, certainly we do want to continue to remember those that Brother Ted mentioned earlier, and certainly as we have opportunity to do that, to make sure we pray on their behalf that things may be much improved and better for them in the near future. Our study this evening takes us further still in the book of 1 Corinthians, so I hope that perhaps you have your Bible with you and we can continue to look at some of the next chapters in that book. In the preceding Sunday evenings, we have already had two lessons from the book of 1 Corinthians. That first lesson was partially an introductory lesson, it not only had before us the matter of the city of Corinth, the setting of the congregation there, and some of the issues with which they were dealing, but it also introduced us to chapter 1, in which we found in that chapter the main matter that would occupy the first four chapters of this book. It was that very sad mention of divisions, factions, if you will, in which there were some following one gentleman, some following another, and Paul very sternly made note to them in verse 10 of chapter 1, I beseech you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And that desire, that command on the part of God with respect to the subject of unity is one that would again occupy Paul's thorough description to the first four chapters of this book. Then in the next lesson, last Sunday evening, we took a brief consideration of chapters 2 and 3. And in those chapters we learned that the central bedrock matter that would produce that, that issue of unity was highlighted as chapter 2 began. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The fact of the gospel the way in which it is founded upon the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the way in which the teaching of Christ is the central matter that is its main teaching, reminded those in Corinth, it wasn't Paul's gospel, it's not Apollos' gospel, it's not Peter's gospel, it's the Lord's gospel. And they needed to give their whole heart and attention to the matters that the Lord Jesus Christ presented through His inspired writers in that gospel. It is for that reason too that we saw in the later parts of chapter 2, the fact of how sweet the Bible is. Namely, that eye hasn't seen nor ear heard the marvelous matters revealed unto us through the sacred text of the Bible. And then in chapter 3, we noted furthermore a bit of an admonition on the part of Paul to these people. An admonition that somewhat went like this. Paul said, I could not deliver to you the meat. Because you were not able to bear it. Verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 3. Here were a people who ought to have been more mature, ought to have been more ready to accept and to chew upon the meteor matters of truth, maturity, and faith. And yet they, due to various and sundry reasons, were not able to be so, were not to that position. Paul thus encouraged them. Is it not the case that I planted Apollos' water and God gave the increase? Verse 6 of chapter 3. It was in fact the special character of those things that reminded them and still teaches us 
the fact of what we're about to see in chapters 4 and 5. Having seen the bedrock of Christ, the fundamental character of the gospel, what awaits us in chapter 4? And what is just ahead over the horizon in chapter 5? The title of the lesson tonight is threefold, Servants, Apostles, and Discipline. And we shall see all of them appearing at the appropriate places in these two chapters. It is at this time, let's begin our consideration of chapter 4. You notice know, Brother Larry read the lesson text a moment ago from chapter 4 verse 2. It read specifically about the matter of stewards and specifically touching the subject of faithfulness. In fact, it said, moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. And immediately Paul puts before the Corinthian brethren yet another matter that would challenge them to appreciate the error that they had come to in this divisional issue. The matter as Paul develops it goes like this. He argues and presents the point so plainly that if one is a proper steward of that which has been entrusted to him, he will of necessity be faithful. That's a concept so easy for you and me to understand in the daily walk of life. If you hire someone to work on your farm or hire someone to work at your place of business, you expect they, they will do exactly what you have given them to do the way you've given them to do it. You do not give them the delegation or license to suddenly go out and do what they want and yet claim that it's your business. How do you suppose a CEO would feel if he made a hire of someone to come to his place of business and oh, two and three weeks later, suddenly he learns that this person has entered into contracts with various places of which he had no knowledge, made business dealings and taken the company in various directions that he had never approved. Do you suppose the owner would be pleased? Do you suppose the owner would feel good about what that hired, that hired person had done? Obviously not. And so it is that these Corinthians had been blessed to sit at the feet of gentlemen like Paul, like Apollos, perhaps even influenced by Peter. They had been in position to hear the blessed gospel from a number of individuals, and all of those individuals were faithful stewards of the Master, Jesus Himself. Paul wasn't going off and laboring on his own apart from the delegated authority of Jesus. Apollos wasn't going off on his own at this point in life, laboring apart from the faith of Christ. And of course the same could be said of Peter. And thus Paul asserted, all of us are working for the same master, the same owner. And the Corinthians had misinterpreted, misunderstood, and had been misinformed and thus taken off on these tangent divisional matters. Such was a sadness to be sure. For those reasons, we come here to the observation. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, there is but one foundation. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so Apollos, Paul, Peter, none are laying any other foundation. And today a faithful elder or a faithful gospel preacher will still lay no other foundation than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at this congregation or at other congregations, we should in fact highly respect and desire for that truth to be presented by virtue of the gospel, that we hear the gospel preached, that we see it studied in classes, that those classes don't ebb away into discussions of television programs and athletic events, 
That is to say, not merely as illustrations, but to use those as the basis for the discussion. Some years ago, there were those who shared with my family and me that at the particular place that they attended, Bible study had degenerated to a point where on Sunday morning you discussed the football game from the previous Friday night, and that occupied the full time. It ought not be so. The Holy Word of God should be the focus. As we learn back in chapters 2 and 3 of this book, the only foundation is Christ. And we should be thankful that we can discuss and learn more. One of the songs that we often sing and one that we seemingly enjoy so much is that song that challenges us more about Jesus would I learn. As we strive to gather and to learn more of the Holy Word of God, the nature of Christ and what it's like to be a servant of His, it takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As you can see beyond that initial observation, we notice this statement in verse 2 again. It is required in stewards. May we note, it's not that it's suggested. It's not that it's an optional matter. He says it's required in stewards. And today, you and I have been placed in trust with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, in fact, to the Thessalonians would state it in exactly that way in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. We've been put in trust with it. In 2 Corinthians 4, you and I in earthen vessels possess the beauty and character of this matter. Not as though it began with us, but we are partners with the Lord in setting it forth. You and I too should thus be found faithful. We should on a daily basis so conduct ourselves and live in such a way that you and I can be reckoned as faithful, not as those that are rogue individuals going our own way and yet trying to claim that we follow the Master. A steward must be found faithful. Those first century ministers, those such as the apostles, I realize that they were blessed in ways that they, of course, had certain qualifications they met as apostles. And they, of course, had a special spiritual gifts that they were able to work. It's noted for us here, they, it was required they be faithful. In principle, that thought hasn't changed. You and I, too, must be found faithful. Isn't it still reminded of us in Revelation 2 that, in fact, it's only those reckoned as faithful be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. If we anticipate a crown of life, faithfulness is a part of that which leads unto that marvelous reward. That means the faithfulness brings us to Paul's next observation. In verse number 4, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord." Paul makes what appears to be a rather simple and almost innocent-sounding observation, but yet isn't it profound? And since it was directed by the Holy Spirit, perhaps that's not surprising. But Paul, in the midst of that verse, said, I am not hereby justified. Paul, I'm not justified by what? First part of the verse, by myself. Paul knew that the efforts of what he thought, the feelings that occupied his mind, the emotions that he in fact dealt with day by day, those do not justify man. And yet there are multitudes of those today laboring underneath the error of that very way. Perhaps you have heard them say that what they feel in their heart, 
what they perceive to think in their mind, they wouldn't trade for any verse of Scripture that you might bring to their attention. That's nothing short of a tragedy. For you and I recognize, Paul said, by what I feel, by what I think, I don't justify myself by that. But as he quickly points out in that verse of the next one, it's the Lord that's the judge. And thus we must be judged, and we shall be, by that which the Lord has declared. And so it ties beautifully to verse 6, where Paul made this admonition. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos, for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up from one against another." Paul, in essence, there described, in light of this fact that it's the Lord that's our judge and the Lord that is the one who declares you and me as justified, we must then not think beyond what is written. There is an absolute boundary. You and I know what it's like to have a fence around a portion of property. That fence serves as a boundary line, a limiting line, if you please, one is to appreciate it divides what's inside to what's outside, what belongs to one portion or person to that which belongs to another. One must not then think beyond what's written. God hasn't delegated to you and me those capabilities of doing what we want, the way we want, when we want. Even the Corinthians in the first century, there was a boundary of what was written. And they were not to think beyond it or go beyond it. Nothing has changed at all in regard to that, has it? We still appreciate that this Word is the very matter the Lord spoke of in John 6, verse 63. The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. That Word, as we noted at one point in the Bible class this morning, is that very matter that makes you and me clean, John 15, 3. And it's that very Word in which we learn the precious truths of the gospel and that word, of course, tells us about the peace of God and the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 17. As you can see then in that verse number 6, as we think about the boundary of the gospel, the boundary of this word, I know that we are preceding just a bit, but when we arrive at chapter 15 of this book, we will learn in the first four verses of that chapter the fundamental truths of the gospel bounded by those matters that touch the life of Jesus, the gospel. And today, when there are individuals who claim that a gospel, or they in, in urge you and me to learn a gospel, there is but one gospel. It was the one that was bequeathed to us by the love of God through the delivery of the Holy Spirit, written by the hand of men, inspired men, that Word of God that you and I have before us even this very night. And that Word of God is a marvelous treasure. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119 verse 11. Didn't the psalmist say in verse 140 of that same chapter, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. The entrance of thy word giveth light and giveth understanding unto the simple. Psalm 119 verses 129 and 130. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 105 of that same chapter. Wasn't it true in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter? We read, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Those are strong statements, aren't they? 
And maybe we'll close it by noting the second verse of that same chapter, the longest chapter in the Old Testament. Yea, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Verse 2, Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with a whole heart. We have in essence an amplification of all that truth as we come to this fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. The boundary of the Word of God, the fact that you and I as blessed individuals may be those who plant and others who of course may water, but all of us, if we're faithful, are faithful stewards of the one and same gospel. That one and same gospel brings us to the top of that slide. For beginning in verse 9 of this chapter... Paul especially begins a discussion and a description of the life and times of the apostles of our Lord. We do realize that they were special men. These whom the Lord chose in the way that He did. In Luke the 6th chapter, beginning in verse 12, Jesus on that occasion prayed all night long. Hours did He devote to prayer. And isn't it significant that in the morning, the first thing He did was He called His disciples to Him, and from that number He selected those that would be the apostles. The Lord prayed apparently fervently, earnestly, lengthily all the night long as He entered into that great decision of selecting those twelve. Maybe we easily appreciate in that the importance of you and me entering into prayer, especially when there are major decisions coming our way. As those apostles were selected, they are so often described in a special way. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, later again in the same book, Paul will make the statement that these apostles were set, S-E-T, meaning that inasmuch as they were especially chosen, they would be those of whom we read so often in the book of Acts. Just as surely as the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, detail for us by far the greatest life ever lived, the life of Jesus Christ. The fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts, is often called the Acts of the Apostles. We learn the works of Peter and Paul, and we even see Philip and a few others, though he himself wasn't an apostle. We learn about the works that they endured, the difficulties of their lives, and the faithfulness that they displayed. As you can begin to see as we look at just a few of the descriptive terms that Paul uses, I'd invite you to read with me as we look at verses 10 and following. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Oh, what those apostles endured for the cause of the one whom they loved. They had been the ones who had been blessed for some period of just a few years to witness the life of Jesus. You may recall in Luke 3, on that occasion, the Lord being some 30 years of age, He entered into a period of public ministry and at that time called unto Him those apostles. It would appear thus that they were those that were with Him for a little over three years. And yet... They came to love, to appreciate, to cherish and adore this one 
They had seen miracles. He'd worked healing those that were blind, healing those that were lame, raising those that were dead. He, they had watched him feed 5,000 with but five loaves and two fishes as recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. They'd watched him walk on water in Matthew the 14th chapter. They'd watched these things. Don't you know that they had a keen appreciation that this was no ordinary man? Special indeed. And they had heard him preach things like the Sermon on the Mount. And they had heard him preach the powerful majesty of what was awaiting him in the city of Jerusalem. It is with that in mind that we come to notice the way that at least tradition says they ended their lives. I have not recorded all of them, but maybe you're aware of that book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was a book written many, many, many years ago. But in that book is a detailed description of many of the most noteworthy individuals of faith throughout the centuries. And that book begins with a description of the apostles and the way in which they ended their lives. Now please again appreciate it is tradition. We do not have any inspired record of the way that they ended their lives with the exception of what of course is in the Bible. But according to those traditions, the vast majority of them were crucified. They too were put to death in very heinous, agonizing, painful ways. We remember on one occasion that that tradition tells us that Peter even requested to be crucified upside down because he did not want to have any closer association to the way in which his Lord had been crucified. As you think about then these apostles, notice Paul's description again. We, he said, are portrayed as the offscouring of the world. So often they were looked upon with persecution, affliction, defamed, as Paul himself would say. So often they were the ones that endured such trials and hardships because they would not bend nor would they compromise the unsearchable riches of Christ. Doesn't that paint a much drearier picture of those throughout the centuries who have compromised? who under the pressure of the moment were willing to give up on the truth for which they once had so strongly preached, and yet under duress of life or duress of far or less difficult matters, they gave up that by compromise. May you and I be strong. May you and I recognize the truth cannot be bent. It must not be compromised. The character of all that matter comes before us to notice these statements near the bottom. Verse 18 of this fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians. I would invite you to notice again the strong language that Paul employs. For this cause, Paul wrote, Have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. There are those throughout the ages who've made the claim that Paul preached one gospel, Peter preached a different one, Apollos preached another, as if they are attempting to defend, even in the ancient day, that which you and I would call denominationalism. But it was never so. Paul said, the same thing I preach in Corinth, I've preached everywhere else. And later in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he'll amplify that thought again. The same thing I preach everywhere. And notice here he said, it's the same thing Timothy preaches. Isn't that a fascinating thought of the unity, the simplicity, and the directness that existed in that first century era? It was a shame that it ever changed, and yet it has. 
Verse 18 closes, as I teach everywhere in every church. The same gospel then that Paul preached in Corinth was the same one he wrote to the Galatians, the same one he preached to the Thessalonians, the same one he wrote to Timothy and Titus. It was all the same truth. And so there are no contradictions, nor are there any discrepancies. It is a fascinating thing then to see the way in which the chapter closes. For it highlights one of the great mistakes of the Corinthian congregation. Verse number 18. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. And we immediately notice that along with those divisions, there was an element of arrogance, an element of inordinate pride, an element, as Paul would say, of being puffed up. They pr proudly looked upon what they were, what they believed, the kind of individual they were, and lost sight of the very basic matter of Christianity. They were puffed up. And that reference will occur several times in the chapters that follow. It really appeared to be one of the main problems they faced. Doesn't it remain so today? An individual who's puffed up isn't willing to listen to the reason and the logic of someone else. He thinks he's right and he needs no discussion or no direction from anybody. Maybe you've spoken with someone like that. It doesn't matter how clear-cut the description, the logic, the presentation, or the analysis, they will have none of it. They think they already have all the answers. And in that puffed-up state, it's very difficult to ever reach them. No wonder humility is one of the most basic and fundamental matters descriptive of any person who will be a follower of the Lord. We must divest ourselves of thinking we have all the characteristics ourselves. We're willing to listen to the Master. We're willing to listen to His guidance and follow His ways. Inasmuch as they were puffed up, verse 19, though, quickly says this, But I will come to you shortly. Apparently there were some in Corinth who were teaching things that ought not be so, and they thought Paul would not come in person. They did not believe he would come and stand face to face with them, and yet Paul said, I'll be there. And I will find out when I come whether they're all talk or whether there's any substance behind what they say. There are many who are merely hot air, aren't they? They speak much but there's no substance, no content behind what they say. May it never be so of you or me, but may you and I have the full breadth and power of the Word of God at our back because the next verse says, For the kingdom of God is not word, but power. Paul later would write, of course, to the Thessalonians about the power that you and I are able to appreciate in the blessed message of the truth. So far as we have looked at, on the one hand, servants, and on the other hand, apostles. Chapter 5, next comes our way. In this chapter, we see a slight change over to another point of description. And it's one I've merely entitled, the very character of the substance of discipline. One of the issues that you and I noted some two weeks ago as we begin a study of 1 Corinthians, was some of those problems that that church was facing. And this evening we've mentioned the matter of them being puffed up. But another one is mentioned here in chapter 5, and it's one that occupies basically the full chapter. Verse number 1 begins it like this. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, 
and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. You'll notice Paul begins by saying it is reported. Word had come to him. He had become aware of the fact that there was fornication in the congregation in Corinth. And in fact, he says this was fornication that apparently was known by a significant number of the congregation, as the chapter will tell us. And furthermore, this fornication, he would go on to say in verse number 1, is even highlighted like this. As lascivious and as licentious and as worldly and as ungodly as the city of Corinth may have been, this kind of behavior, he says, is not even named among the Gentiles, as you have displayed in your congregation a man having his stepmother, his father's wife, living with her in a state of fornication. Is it any wonder in verse number 2 it says, You're puffed up. Here again is that same phrase. We begin again to see that this was a troublesome part on the part of the Corinthians. Whereas, verse 2 says, they should have mourned, whereas they should have been heartbroken that sin had crept into the church this way and that someone was living like this. They weren't mournful. They hadn't been sorrowful. They were puffed up about it. Paul doesn't go into any greater detail about what that means. But perhaps it meant this. They tried to defend it. They tried to rationalize it. They tried to make excuses for the fellow. They tried to find some way to argue that maybe there was an excuse for it. And in so doing, in that puffed up state, they didn't address the sin that existed. What a sadness and what a tragedy because you'll notice Paul addresses it and he does so with directness, with straightforwardness, and also with all the power of heaven. You'll notice in verse 3, For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this. So you'll notice in verse 1 it was noted, it had been reported, that it was a true thing. It was not merely hearsay. It was not merely a matter that someone had made up to get back at what someone else may have done. There was a truth in this. Paul apparently by recognition of his endowment as an apostle says, I've judged in this matter. And it's a matter that you brethren in Corinth must deal with at once. It will not wait for procrastination. It will not wait to be dealt with later. It must be handled at once. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Discipline. We notice that this individual, this, this person, was to be handed over to Satan. What strong wording, what powerful language to deliver such an one unto Satan. We have in these verses before us the absolute demand to purge the church of sin. You and I, I heard it said many, many years ago, and I think there's much to commend it, that you and I should desire to keep the spiritual body of Christ, the church, as pure as Jesus kept His physical body. We should desire, in fact, to keep all the errors and discrepancies and the terrible character of sin at distance and at bay. The whole reason for this, as you can see, 
was not to get even with the guy. It was not to make him a public spectacle and make him feel bad publicly. The whole purpose, the whole goal was that he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That he might come to his senses, repent of this matter, stop this way of living, and do things correctly. That was the whole objective and that was the whole goal. As Paul addressed it even further, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Believe it or not, knowing that there was this fornication, some were glorying over it. They seemingly were proud of the fact. Do you know what's happening in our church? Aren't you excited about the fact that we are openly welcoming of everybody? That sounds much like some kinds of churches we hear about today. You've perhaps seen them advertised on TV. We welcome everybody. doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle you may lead, what beliefs you may have, what you do and do not adhere to. We'll accept you. You just come right ahead. You and I would be excited to think that we, like Christ, would be happy to teach them, share with them, but we won't openly fellowship just any and everyone. And yet here, they were glorying in matters that were not to be gloried over. That verse goes on to say, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth a whole lump? If this matter weren't dealt with, would it not have been easy for others in Corinth to think, Well, if he's a member of the church and they welcome him, well, maybe I should begin there. Maybe I should place my membership there. They'll accept me too. No matter what my lifestyle may or may not have been, what I may or may not be doing daily, we can easily see the church would soon become a playground for sinfulness. It would soon become a very playground for every licentiousness and lewdness that men wish to pursue and yet think they can call the very blessing of God on them. The next verse says, by way of commandment, Purge out therefore the old leaven. A commandment. The word purge. As Adam could well tell us from a computer standpoint, when one purges files, one removes the older files that the system no longer needs, those files that are not now required for the operation of the system. Here was sinful character that needed to be purged. Notice it wasn't tolerated, it wasn't excused, it wasn't made use of in such a fashion to sweep it beneath a rug. It was dealt with, wasn't it? We notice that the church in Corinth had many things then to consider, and discipline was one of them. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it was then a serious issue for them. So serious was it, in fact, that it occupies at least a part of the second Corinthian letter. When Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians, with all of its harshness, with all of its directness, commandments like, purge out the old leaven, Deliver such an one to Satan. You and I can well imagine that many a church would not hear that well. You and I can imagine what some might be tempted to say. Can you believe the nerve of this man telling us what to do? Here he is hundreds of miles away. He has no business meddling in our affairs. And they quite likely would have torn up the letter and thrown it in the trash. No wonder Paul had some concerns. How will they hear this letter? Will they hear it in the loving way I've seen it? Will they respond by way of repentance to what has been commanded from the God of heaven? No wonder Paul had some anxious moments. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2 will tell us, I was beside myself waiting until I heard from Titus. And when Titus came and shared that they had heard the word well, they had repented of the error, this situation of fornication had been dealt with, Paul's mind was put at ease. They had responded in repentance. I'm sure Paul, a bond between him and that church, partly came to pass because of that very matter that they had heard it and they'd responded in love. For that matter, that leads us to these final comments that draws us to the close of chapter number 5. In verses 9 and following, we find Paul mentioning, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. This matter of fornication, they were accompanying it, they were puffed up about it, they were glorying in it. They were not in any way sorrowful for the gentleman. Paul here says, I wrote you. He apparently had written to them a previous correspondence. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to preserve it. We do not have any copies of what he wrote other than he apparently in it said, I warned you, I told you not to keep company with fornicators. And so in verses 10 and following, we notice he mentions some other sinful activities. Covetousness, extortioners, idolaters. As we noted in two weeks ago, that kind of behavior was frequently occurring in Corinth. And Paul says none of that should be tolerated and fellowshiped to the point in verse number 11, even with one like that, one should not keep fellowship to the point of eating with him. Not in a way in which you are encouraging his lifestyle. Not in a way in which you hold up in fellowship terms the kind of life he is living. Today we notice as the chapter closes, we have this final admonition, this final warning. Verse 13, Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Our elders then in churches today have a serious charge, do they not? To watch the flock, to deal with those wicked individuals. If you and I begin to live in a way that is regarded as a sinful character and we will not repent of it, we in fact will hear no kind of description, no kind of advice. They have a responsibility to deal with us, first of all, in a personal way. Jesus stated back in Matthew 18 that if... A brother and you have something against you, you first go to him one-on-one. -on -one. Speak with him, talk with him, strive to reach him. However, Jesus did realize he may not listen. Take a witness or two with you if that's true. You still try to reason with him, help him to see the danger of his soul. Finally, if he still won't listen... If he is bound and determined to pursue this life of sinfulness, that's, of course, set forth in the Bible. It's condemned. You bring it before the church. And you, in fact, make it known that we will not fellowship with this one because he's chosen to live a life that is not in accordance to the plan of God. As our elders would lead a congregation in carrying out that kind of discipline, what a serious matter it would be. Again, its goal is nothing more than this, to reach the life of that man or that woman, that they would not be lost in the day of judgment, but that they might be saved. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, admonishing them to deal with this situation of fornication, this matter of sinfulness. And so in conclusion, might we not say, 
We've studied tonight about servants. And a fact, a servant is to be faithful. We've studied about apostles and been reminded of what great sacrifices they gave for the cause of the one who died for them and us. And then we've studied about discipline. We know how important discipline is in our homes when a father or mother will discipline a child. It's done in love and done with appropriateness. So too in the church, discipline is a vital matter. Often a necessary thing, always done to bring about good in the life of the one who has erred. Tonight, as we have drawn to conclusion these two chapters, I would hope that we would be reminded of how great the Bible is. It has the answers to all the problems we may face individually or as a congregation. And may we use it as our guide, as our leading point to produce in us and in others that which they ought to have. Tonight, as you and I analyze ourselves, where do you stand with God? Are you faithful? As a steward, are you being faithful until death? Or have you lost trustworthiness with regard to what was planted in and with you? If that is the case of you tonight, why not come back to your first love? In recent Sundays, we've been privileged to pray on behalf of those who had erred and to come back to the fold of God. We do read in Luke 15 how sweet it is. Rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine that need no repentance. It may be there's one here tonight that's in that condition in life. We'd be delighted to pray with you. We'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. It might also be there's one or more here that's never obeyed the gospel initially. You've heard the Word of God proclaimed. You've seen it espoused in the lives of faithful men and women. And you know it's time for you to make a decision too. Why not come to Jesus this very night? As we often sing these songs, Come to Jesus, come, come today. You do know tomorrow may be too late. You do know there may not be a sunrise tomorrow. Although there may be one, you and I may not live long enough to see it. Don't allow this moment to pass. If you need to respond tonight, the gospel plan of salvation is believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as the Master, and be baptized. That simple plan of salvation will put you into the church, Acts 2.47, and living faithfully until death, the crown of life will then be yours. If we could help you tonight to become a member of the body, 1 Corinthians 12.13, we'd be delighted to help you. Brother Adam has chosen this song of encouragement. And if we could assist you, why not come while together we stand and sing?